Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How you feeling, Mark? I feel like a kid who faked sick to watch The Price is Right. How you feeling? That That's like the best feeling ever. Uh, I, I, feel like, <laughs> uh, I feel like a shut-in on top of a mountain. Okay. Uh, recently, I, I my house in LA is on top of a hill, and this week I've been working from home a lot, and it like I do kind of feel like tomorrow I'm gonna like purposely go out and walk somewhere or something because I'm feeling a little. Uh, when you when you're working where you're living, you kind of like don't go anywhere. Yeah. I've so I've been, been here. I've been in like one room or two rooms the entire week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get outside. <laughs> dude i love yeah, the you do that tomorrow i love the feeling of watching uh some prices right when you're homesick yeah that was the greatest thing even it's, when you were actually sick you know yeah it's pretty much the only time you can actually watch it <laughs> yeah that and like a snow day yeah for sure um so, <laughs> so today so this yeah. this week each of us brought three or four we're just going with literary tropes that's the only thing so no game or anything we're just going with literary tropes so whatever that means to either of us and uh mark i'll let you i'll, yeah. I'll let you take it away so i was thinking you know for every truly great book there are thousands or you know millions of average or worse ones you know like by definition half of them are less than average and and the bad ones are bad in so many different ways. And some some have good beginnings, good endings, but they have fatal flaws still. You know, there's a lot of ways to fuck up a story. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, <laughs> you know, as someone who, as someone who can't write for shit, I, I try not to be too harsh, but sometimes, you know, you can't help it. But so, yeah, what are the things that make you shake your head or, you know, quit reading a book altogether? <laughs> like tropes or cliches. You want me I, to go first? I don't know if I, I don't know if this first one will make me quit reading. None of mine, I don't think, will make me quit reading a book altogether. Um, but I do have a book that I famously quit reading. What, what, uh, I quit reading, um, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand because I just thought like I got to the end of my rope and I thought it was such bullshit. Is there a book that you famously remember <laughs> as like one of the only books that you put down? Uh oh, uh, Franzen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One, yeah, whatever one. I couldn't even remember which one it was. Uh, yeah, uh, probably Freedom or something. I think we've both always been curious about Franzen because of his his kind of association with David Foster Wallace, but. I was ready to read Friends, and and then you texted me one day, and you were like, "This dude sucks." And I was like, I, "He was literally like my next book to read." And then after <laughs> after I got that text, it's probably been five years since you texted that, so he went to the bottom of the list. <laughs> I um, used it as like a doorstop out of spite. So we were saying we were, you were I was saying you're the gold recommendation um, for me as far as books go, but you're also the golden uh, you can kill like anyone like that was going to be my <laughs> next book a few years ago. And then I was like, nope, Mark says friends and sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, but my first literary trope that I don't really like and kind of shake my head when I read it in any book is some character, especially a main character that is supposed to be imbued with some sort of significance because they have red hair. To yeah. me, red hair is like, like that happens in a few Stephen King novels. I'm pretty sure in it, the main kid is supposed to have red hair. It also happens in the fountainhead, which I just mentioned. Ayn Rand, like, Oh, he had a shock of red hair. 
And uh, I just, I feel like a lot of authors put it in there by being like, this is the character that's unique. And it's like, I don't care if they have red hair. <laughs> yeah, that shouldn't define them. Yeah, so I always, I, that's what, I mean, I'm sure some authors have done it right, but every time I've encountered the red haired main character, I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> that's a good one. That's my first one. My, my first is, uh, you know, when a, a modern book ignores technology, that's a big one for me. Or like, it's mm. like the thing with all the shows in like Friends and Seinfeld, like all the problems that could have been avoided with the use of like a cell phone or that sort of thing. But when it's like a modern, a modern book, it's supposed, it's supposed to be like modern times and they kind of ignore that because it yeah. is a hard, it's a hard subject to tackle. But if you ignore it fully, then I don't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's a lot of like the the age of smartphones have destroyed a lot of like writing um, tropes and like convenience where it's like, but I also on the flip side, I also remember, I think it's under the dome that that was the first Stephen King book where he like, it was weird to read about like this character has an iPhone. You know what I mean? Like, I think I remember that. It. Yeah, I think I remember that in Under the Dome. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, And, I, and also seeing it because, um, you know, some people nowadays might say smartphone. That's kind of entered the vernacular. But it, it's very weird to read iPhone in a book because people also usually print it the way Apple wants you to with the small yeah, I and branded. the big P. <laughs> so like, that ha that word has entered into the dictionary, but it's also branded. So, it, yeah, it feels weird to see that. But I'm with you where people are sort of like, oh, yeah, it's 2019. But there's lots of problems that could be solved with a smartphone, but that we don't use them. Yeah, and my perception, and like I may be wrong in this, is that there aren't there aren't many fiction books that really handle the reality of the internet and how like modern life really is. Like, I wonder who's gonna write the first book about you know scrolling Twitter for hours and being tired all the time, <laughs> like a yeah. post postmodern epic about social media garbage. Yeah, for sure. I think that that opportunity is definitely out there, both for publishers and for authors to kind of do some sort of intelligent con I, I often think of that, I mean, we're getting off on a tangent, but like, that's what this is for. Um, I often think about that in terms of, um, you know, social media, I think has a very jarring effect on your psyche. Like you're looking at pictures of like people's dogs and your best friends. And then like the next thing you scroll to is like bombs going off somewhere in the world and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting mix. So someone will definitely write that. I think eventually. Um, yeah, and, and along with uh, like the the <clears throat> lack of using phones and whatnot, sometimes there's also a story where it's just like communication in general. Like the main thing that moves the plot along is the characters either like can't or won't talk to each other. Yeah, another big you thing know. in Stephen King. <laughs> Some things remain unsaid. Yeah, like we met, we mentioned that's kind of like how Salem's Lot works, where it's like, oh, yeah. if, if these two characters would just talk to each other, this whole book would just be coordinate. over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, what's your next one? Yeah, that was that was a pretty good one. Some some me I I even though I don't want to draw it out too long, some good mentions of good modern books is Eighty Sit Smith Swing Time, which I've talked about on the podcast before. That's a good modern book. She mentions iPhones and Google and all that stuff. So, um, my next trope is. Um, in the context of epics, so when I use the word, I, I don't like that people overuse the word epic. I really, that annoys me all the time. But in the context of true epics, things like the Odyssey or books that are a thousand pages or go over multiple generations and stuff like that, 
it's a literary trope for the beginning to be the end. So I don't want to make any specific references. There are some epics that you and I have in, that have both enjoyed that I know we've both read, but it's a liter- I mean, you usually accept it at the end of a giant epic because you've gone through such a big journey that it makes sense that the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end, but yeah. Yeah. I've gotten to the end of a few epic th- things that are epic in nature, either multi-volume or thousands of pages and uh that's how you wrap it up. That's how people wrap up <laughs> epics. They're, they're just like, how do I end this? Well, the beginning is the end is the beginning. That's what. It's a Mobius strip. Yeah, exactly. So that's like a trope that I, I think I accept it, but I also recognize it as sort of like, well, that's how you got out of this situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that kind of ties into uh, my next one, which is, it, it, I mean, it's probably the same thing, actually. The, like, the ending that's kind of a cop out. And yeah. that's one of them where it's, you know, and sometimes it could be just all a dream or nothing that happened was actually of any consequence right. or you know the character who's fucking up left and right just walks off into the sunset and you know <laughs> a lot of people are complaining about the game of thrones finale i haven't sort of ending I, I haven't seen the finale a lot of people i mean i think a lot of people have ex- trouble accepting ends of things as well like the same thing with the sopranos kind of ends abruptly and people are like what the fuck <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, it's that it's that old thing of sort of when you're an author and you've got something on your hands that you think is the appropriate length for the story. But I think sometimes they get to it and they just end it. Yeah. Um, our one of our favorite Stephen King can definitely be uh, accused of that on multiple occasions. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this book is long enough to publish now. I'm going to end it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my next one. And I actually only brought three. Maybe I'll come up with another one as we're talking. But my next one is I don't like when there's undue aggression in the adult world for young adult fiction and probably more specifically Harry Potter. So like Mm -hmm. I'm a Harry Potter fan. I've read all seven books. I think that she I think that JK Rowling is a great author and everything like that. But I was at like a dinner party or so like I was like with like a bunch of friends a few weeks ago just hanging out at my apartment. And I happened to mention like, of course, I've read all seven and they all kind of had this like. Like, oh, that's not cool, like a gassed (laughs) sort of look on their face. And, and, you know, with hosting this pod, and obviously, like, I give book recommendations to a lot of my friends and stuff. I've had great conversations and great friendships develop through book recommendations and stuff. And all of them were like, oh, Harry Potter, that's so lame. And I was like, oh, really? Because I know nothing about books, really. You know, (laughs) so undue shade for Harry Potter is one of my (laughs) literary tropes and annoyances. I can be guilty of that, but my niece is really into it right now. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a good thing to read, like with kids and stuff like that. And, like, you know, whatever. It's Harry Potter. (laughs) So, uh, so my next one is the uh, manic pixie dream person, you know, and this this is (laughs) like, it comes up. Yeah, yeah, it comes up in a lot of forms. Uh, Thing off the top of my head I was thinking of was like Murakami's a little bit guilty of it. Oh, 100%. In a different way, in a different kind of way. It's like, the character, the main character may seem have to know, seem to have no depth, you know, but all this yeah. stuff is just pushed into their lives for no reason. Right. Like someone who's amazing and mysterious suddenly wants everything to do with them. 
yeah. you can't understand why or pushes them through some sort of new experience. No, yeah, you're right. I think he's definitely like I would I would be interested to challenge Murakami and be like, write a character that is going through a dry spell and has no sex life because they're as <laughs> because they're as boring as you actually make them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Just let them, yeah, live on their own. I don't know. Yeah. Do normal stuff. You could probably still pull it off. <laughs> they can still go into a dream world in the back of their closet that they just can't yeah. have a man pixie uh, dream romance <laughs> alright uh, I'll jump to my last one unless you got one off the cuff no no off the cuff yet okay uh, another, number four when, when writers attempt something that's too far outside of their experience and it's painfully obvious mm-hmm. and it just doesn't seem like the topic suits them or they character type or something and what i thought about with this was american gods like the neil gaiman yeah the yeah. main character is like supposed <laughs> like he, he's you know the biggest badass of all time like his name is like fucking shadow or something uh and he's like oh he had tattoos and like i just mm-hmm. i need to go back and read it because i remember just scoffing at all the descriptions of the guy it's like i don't know <laughs> Yeah, it's like I the the main character of American Gods and Hill Gaiman's most famous novel, which me and Mark kind of make fun of because if that's his best work, then I don't want to know the rest. But um, yeah, I think I know. I think I know what you're picking up on. It's like maybe Gaiman like tried. He's like basically like a like a badass, you know, character that he can't really like fully pull off. There's a few characters in that book that are a little kind of like iffy. Um, well I I mean I didn't get to the end I don't know maybe that guy was supposed to be a god or I'm I'm not sure I picked it I do have a I do have one final one that's off the cuff for me and that this is actually something that I've I've actually noticed in the past few Russian authors that I've been reading like I read Bulgakov um, and uh, I've been reading some Dostoevsky and stuff like that and sometimes they do this thing you know how in the beginning of a Stephen King book he usually writes something to his constant reader yeah is that just in Dark Tower is that in everything Uh, sometimes there's like a foreword yeah. So basically, Stephen King has this concept of he writes like a foreword that he addresses the audience as his constant reader. And I'm not too bothered by that. That's like it. Uh, he almost kind of like bookends books like that or just introduces them that way to get you into the mood. I'm kind of OK with that. What I don't like is in the middle of a book, someone sort of like the author will start a chapter and be like, as we've heard previously in our story. Or, you know, or like, or let me tell you, reader, that 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 this one was a shock and, you know, stuff like that. And I've noticed that, I mean, Bulgakov did it a few times in Master and Margarita. Dostoevsky does it sometimes. And it's just sort of like, I don't know if it's a translation thing or if it's like a Russian thing or I don't know. But sometimes I just don't like when it comes out of left field because... Another thing that's really important, I think, in writing is voice, like first person, third person, you know, narrative or whatever. It's a really important thing as you're reading Proust, like which which um, voice he's assuming and stuff like that. But I don't like that breaking the. I do like metafiction and stuff like that, but not in the middle of nowhere. You know, you're just reading a book and it's like, let me tell you, this <laughs> next part's going to be a page turner. And you're like, what? <laughs> Uh, so I don't like that literary trope addressing the audience when it's unnecessary I guess is what I'm trying to pin, <laughs> pinpoint okay that's a good yeah. one so literary so tropes you're going let first it, let us know on Twitter or Instagram or whatever way you follow us what 
what some of your least favorite literary tropes are. Um, yeah, to, today is episode 18, even number, which means I'm going first. Um, today's a bit of a filler episode for me. I don't know. I don't, it won't go by too quickly because I have a few things to say. But um, let's just say, and I know that you're familiar with this concept, Mark, but since reading the podcast, you can't really read fast enough for doing one book a week unless you're Art Garfunkel. It's tough. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, it gets stressful a little bit. <laughs> and I don't think it. I, I don't think it has to get because the one that the thing that I get scared of is like, oh, I'm going to run out of books to do. But the reality is, I just have to kind of think a little bit harder and back into the past of what I have read, and I'm not going to run out definitely. <laughs> but um, uh, what I did this week was, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a filler because there is a lot to talk about. But I did. I've selected another short story. Um, the only other short story I've done. You did one short story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I might have done a short story collection. Yeah, I did the short story um, "The Secret Integration" by Thomas Pynchon, and this week my I have another short story by the famous short story author and uh, Russian author Anton Chekhov, and I did his short story called "The Black Monk" from 1894. So um, this was originally published in a Russian artistic journal um, in 1894. I think it eventually was translated into English in 1901. Um, I'm probably doing a bit of a disservice and some of my theater friends would kill me by talking only about Chekhov's short stories because he's most famously known for um, a few of his plays uh, in the theater, probably most notably The Seagull, which is like a really famous play that still gets performed all the time. Also, Uncle Vanya um, is by Chekhov. Uh, These are all plays that are basically like stage standards. Um, He also wrote uh, Three Sisters in the Cherry Orchard. So just keep in mind that Chekhov, uh, he was not only a medical doctor, but he also was a famous playwright and well known for his short fiction. Um, So I'm going to be talking about specifically what? He had the glasses. Yes, the the pince-nez. The wallet chain on him. (laughs) Yeah, the pince-nez. The pince-nez are those type of glasses that have no... uh, no frames for the ears the morpheus glasses <laughs> yeah. uh he Chekhov was famously known for wearing those um and also famously tolstoy was a fan of his so uh, this guy can't be too bad if uh, tolstoy was all about him um cosine a really interesting quote that i ran across i mentioned briefly i don't i can't go too much into Chekhov's biography because i i did some research for him based on the podcast but a lot of stuff out there is about his involvement in the theater and i was kind of more uh sticking to his short story career but What's it, what is interesting is that he was a medical doctor and he was a doctor first. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you were, you once told me a quote by, I think it was Phil Collins, where he said Genesis is his wife, but um, what's his other band? Brand X. Brand, Brand X, X was the mistress. Is his mistress, yeah. So yeah. Phil Collins once said that Genesis is his wife and... Um, Brand X is his mistress. Well, the original quote, that might be a bastardized quote because the original quote is Chekhov. And he is quoted as saying of his literary career, medicine is my lawful wife and literature is my mistress. Oh, nice. So uh, maybe Phil has some secret Chekhov knowledge that we need to check up on. We'll 
Probably. We'll yeah. get Phil on the phone. Um, some interesting stuff about his early life. Like I said, I didn't read about his whole life, but some of the interesting stuff of his early life um, is, you know, Russian father, Ukrainian mother, and something that I think is interesting that plays into um, some of the other stuff that I'm going to talk about is that it says here on Wikipedia that he... Um, he says, we got our talents from our father, but our soul from our mother. And that it's widely kind of accepted that Chekhov wrote a lot of characters that are sort of like hypocritical. And he was on the dark side of things with, you know, being cynical about people's motivations and stuff like that. Um, but it's also kind of widely accepted that his father was like, he was like the type of guy who was, you know, like clergyman in the streets and, you know, beating his kids and his wife <laughs> at home so um you know he was physically abusive and some historians say he's the model for many portraits of Chekhov's hypocrisy which you know that's an interesting thing um someone moving on to check kind of like Chekhov's characters and I want to talk about his um short stories mostly um you know, there, there's a quote from this guy, E.J. Dillon, who said the effect on the reader of Chekhov's tales was re was repulsion at the gallery of human waste represented by his fickle, spineless and drifting people. And R.E.C. Long said Chekhov's characters were repugnant and that Chekhov reveled in stripping the last dregs of dignity from the human soul. Um that's pretty reflected in um, this story, The Black Monk. It's a really great story. Um, it, it goes along kind of with the theme, some of the same themes that I talked about in the Russian novel Master and Margarita about kind of creative people struggling with mental illness. Um, in my edition of... Uh, I have a Dover Thrift edition of Five Great Short Stories Unabridged by Anton Chekhov. And in my edition, this story is only 30 pages. So it's a nice, obviously quick read that I could get done for in time for the podcast or read this morning. Yeah. So it's <laughs> fresh in my mind because uh, yeah. I, I was too ambitious about finishing my other book. Um, <laughs> but it is a nice little story. What struck me about it that's really interesting is that he definitely has the discipline of almost like a filmmaker or a film editor where like this, any given story of his, I'm sure could be expanded into a full play or a full novel or something like that. But he does have good discipline in sort of just establishing something. And then the next section or chapter is just like, and then a year later, but he doesn't, he doesn't say that he doesn't break the fourth wall. Like my trope is he kind of just says like he establishes that something is happening in summer. And then the next scene opens up in winter. And then the next scene opens up, you know, three years later and stuff like that. So it's a, okay. it's a thread that kind of goes throughout, um, to briefly summarize what the black monk is about, uh, like I said, there are themes of creative struggling with mental illness, which is obviously I, I'm all down for that. It's a, it's a theme that I love in literature, but uh, the story is called the black monk because the main character who is, and we all love those Russian names, Andre Vasilich Kovrin, who's a master of the, he's working towards getting his graduate degree, like a master of the arts and philosophy. He um, is basically, he does the classic thing of, you know how like in every like late 19th century novel, it's like to cure your illness, go out to the countryside and get some fresh air. 
Yep. <laughs> have you ever seen that like that's a that's a that there's a literary trope for you that happens in pretty much every book where the doctor's like go get some fresh air and live in the countryside yeah or the homecoming kind of things for the same reason right so he he's basically living on in like a country like a russian country estate with two family friends one is like a young woman that he has you know some feelings for and her father is a relatively willing not very strict russian father who's basically says to him at one point like you're the only person who i think you know will fit with uh tanya who is the the woman that he has feelings for and what happens to kovrin as he's staying at this estate is that he starts to have visions of the black monk so he basically sees this guy um First, I think he sees him in a dream, but then he also physically sees him. Or no, it was Chekhov that saw him in a dream. The real story is that Chekhov had a dream of this uh, religious monk clad in black floating over a field, like not walking, like an apparition. He had like a dream mm-hmm. like that. And then he integrated into the story where Coverin goes out into a field one day, just kind of relaxing his mind from his studies um, in the city and he's and he literally sees this kind of phantom manifestation he ends up talking to him a few times throughout his life and these are the snapshots of like how he sees the black monk and where he sees him and stuff like that it cuts together chess with him no he doesn't play chess no. with him no seven seal style um but it it, got, it it does operate on that like horror movie kind of thing like there's a there like, one time the black monk appears to him when he's like in the dark and then he lights a candle and he's sitting there so it's like a little creepy um <laughs> so there's cool stuff like that but the thing about it is you kind of you brought up something good which is you know the famous movie the seventh seal by ingmar bergman is a soldier plays chess with death to bargain for his own life and in a weird way the black monk is kind of also like that when Coverin sees him he ends up kind of having very brief but deeply philosophical conversations with him um but the thing that's really interesting about this um story especially for being published in the late 1800s is that I really like how Coverin, the main character, kind of acknowledges his own mental illness. He basically says, hey, if I'm like seeing you, then I'm definitely crazy. Um, and he kind of physically sees this phantom manifestation. And a lot of the the story and how Chekhov puts it together and why he's such a good short story writer is that he very succinctly kind of um, puts this character into your mind that uh yeah he is questioning his own sanity and he is like questioning his own thoughts but the the events that transpire are very there's good dialogue and it's very sort of indicative of of that whole struggle of am i crazy am i not crazy um another thing that i before i dive into uh, a quote that will probably be one of my last things that i talk about about the black monk i have a few quotes in here another thing to kind of bring up which is actually something that murakami turned me on to in his novel 1q84 which we've talked about before but haruki murakami mentions in that novel uh he kind of has like a literary debate about Chekhov's gun have you ever heard of that concept mark yeah so yeah it shows up in the yeah. first act yeah Chekhov's right. gun is that is and it says here from Wikipedia Chekhov's gun is a dramatic principle that states that every element in a story must be necessary and irrelevant elements should be removed he definitely follows that trend like anything that is in a Chekhov short story from what I've seen so far 
is indicative of like something in the story. But what's interesting that uh, the the people, the reason why they call it Chekhov's gun is because in a few of his letters, he has said, you know, if there, if the first chapter, if there's a rifle hanging on the wall and the second or third chapter, it has to go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be there. Um, and the interesting thing that Murakami does is in 1Q84, he introduces that concept, talks about it as a literary concept. There is a gun in the in the novel, which is a thousand pages, and guess what? It never goes off. So uh, we, <laughs> we you know, that's Murakami entering into a new literary form, basically saying, "Hey, I can have uh, erogenous elements if I want." Is erogenous the right word? Is, that's like a sexual term, <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> uh, uh, what what word am I looking for? Erogenous. Uh, uh, super, super flu- erroneous. That's what I'm looking for. Erroneous. <laughs> uh, well, Murakami has erogenous and erroneous elements, so whatever. Yeah. Um, but to give you a good, uh, a little flavor, I'll read like half a page here um, from the Black Monk. Uh, it's a great read. Um, uh, like I said, a lot of the quotes from it. Um, are really kind of nice and philosophical. Like there's one that's a really good one. Um, I'm reading here off Wikipedia, not from my book, but it says that this, the black monk says, I exist in your imagination and my, and your imagination is part of nature. So therefore I exist in nature. So it's those kind of things where um, when somebody is mentally ill or when you're feeling, um, you know, anxiety or depression or something like that. I think you always do have that moment, right? Of like, is this real? Is this not real? And then you're like, well, it kind of is real just because it's real, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Like if I'm happening. feeling something, then that's what I'm feeling. Um, and there's kind of no getting around that. And I think the black monk is, is definitely, um, definitely fits in that category. So here's kind of a long form quote. Uh, like, like you said, Mark, it does remind me of the seventh seal. This is about half a page from when Coverin is speaking to the black monk. So what is the object of eternal life? Coverin asks. the same as all life enjoyment. True enjoyment is knowledge and eternal life offers numberless and inexhaustible sources of knowledge. This is the meaning of in my father's house are many mansions. And I think that that's a, that's a quote from the old Bible. Um, <clears throat> okay, to continue on, uh, if only if you only knew how pleasant it is to listen to you, Coverin said, rubbing his hands with satisfaction. I'm very pleased, but I know that when you go away, I'll be troubled about your reality. You are a vision, a hallucination. Consequently, I am physically ill. I'm not normal. And what of that? Why are you troubled? You are ill because you have worked beyond your strength and you are exhausted, which means that you have sacrificed your health to an idea and the time is near when you will sacrifice your life to it too. What could be better? It is the object to which all noble natures gifted from above consequently aspire. If I know that I'm mentally diseased, can I believe in myself? The black monk says, how do you know that the men of genius who are believed in by the whole world have not also seen visions? Scholars may, scholars say now that genius is allied to insanity. My friend, only the ordinary people, the herd, are quite well and normal. All this consideration about the nervous century, overwork, degeneration, etc. can only seriously alarm those whose object in life is the present. That is the people of the herd. So basically, you know, Coverin is having these debates with himself and this black monk that he's seen in his own vision, but it goes back. And I think Chekhov is really good at kind of succinctly saying, you know, the whole concept of, you know, um, 
when we're mentally ill, when we're anxious, when we are, um, you know, not feeling too great, I think that there is some sort of comfort in knowing that a lot of people, a lot of kind of well-respected voices in society have often been the most honest they can with also those things. Like, you know, you think about someone like, I mean, it comes up with authors all the time, like Dostoevsky or, you know, mm-hmm. Tolstoy or, or anything like that. I mean, I know that those are only Russian authors, but it also comes up in other areas. You know, think about like someone like Robin Williams and like stuff like that, where it's like the truly kind of observant are sometimes also the most depressed, the most um, burdened by mental health issues. So I think that Chekhov is kind of succinctly saying that and using the the apparition of the black monk as as a portal into talking about that. Yeah, it's a shared shared experience. <laughs> yeah, and I and uh, and that's basically what I think the black monk is saying there. Uh, you know, only thirty pages, but a character goes from beginning to end. Hint, hint, spoilers, and. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a good read and, and something that it just like all short stories that are really good. You know, the actual reading of the story is uh, almost secondary to your reaction to it because you get that little slice of life. and Then you have to think about it afterwards. Some of my other research yeah. that I did for the podcast. Um, this is my last thing that I'll say here is that I was kind of psyched because in a in the legacy section of Chekhov's Wikipedia article, they um they mentioned that Tolstoy was a was a huge fan of his and an early admirer of Chekhov's short stories and that he actually Tolstoy himself actually had a, a first quality and second quality like so basically his first choice and second choices of many of um Chekhov short stories that he bound into like his own book so you can imagine <laughs> you can imagine Tolstoy being the amazingly famous author that he was even during his own lifetime so um just to give a sh- i mean i think that that's the ultimate shout out and in the fir- and it, they list actually what his first picks were and in the first category is children the chorus girl a play home misery the runaway in court vanka ladies a malefactor the boys darkness sleepy the helpmate and the darling so um you know chekhov was you can tell just from that, um, just from that short list that he was obviously pro- prolific. Those were only the top ones of Tolstoy's favorites, so he had you know <laughs> dozens and dozens of short stories. And to me, that's like a perfect indication of you know I want to read all the ones that Tolstoy thought was the best. Nice. Um, I wonder if they sell that collection. I wondered that too. I don't. I couldn't really find it, but whoever isn't selling it, it but has the rights to check off you're you're throwing money down the drain yeah um, <laughs> so yeah and also i mean like i said all my theater friends would kill me because Chekhov has this whole double life like not only the double life of medicine versus literature but also short stories versus plays and he also had like a profound influence on stanislavski's system of acting which is like one of the biggest you know you know any actor then they study the stanislavski system which then leads into the strasberg system and stuff like that so he had a, a large effect on the stage not only a of writing, writing playwrights and stuff like that, but also methods of acting. So um, check off, check him out. And uh, I've read The Black Monk so far. Um, 
And don't be surprised if I fill in another podcast with one of his short stories because he's a good one. Nice. Yeah. And if it's got some connection or some kind of similar feeling or tone to uh, or mood to like uh, Seven Seal, definitely like to read that. Yeah, it's cool. It's just like a like a really short thirty page thing, and it's like yeah, this guy sees the this like crazy apparition, and like what, and you know, like his his new his new wife kind of like show like sees him talking to him once, and and they're like, you need to go to a clinic, like you're insane. <laughs> uh, so good times, nice. So all right, uh, Mark's up to bat. Yeah, so uh, so this week I felt a little unprepared too, and uh, so I wanted to capture, just go back to the basics, capture the real essence of the show, which is you know the idea of a book report done in a shitty manner. So I tried to put myself back in my middle school shoes for this one, uh, but I ended up being you know a little bit more prepared than I thought. So, <laughs> but I re- you know I read this book a couple months ago. It's actually another short story. It's a short story collection, like you. Um, I don't remember everything about it, but I'm gonna give it a shot. So. Uh, I guess that doesn't exactly mimic the middle school experience, which is more about not reading the book or reading half of it the night before or even <laughs> yeah, the morning I, of on the bus I ride. Get, we've given ourselves the ultimate out on shitty book reports. We can be like, I've only read half the book, so this is going to be a real shitty one. But so yeah, far, yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, so far, I haven't read half a book for this podcast. <laughs> it's there though. It's we. It's the options there, but you know, getting up in front of the class all nervous, saying uh, the book was good. <laughs> it had good characters. The plot Dude, and setting were good. <laughs> I have good. no, I have no clue how I like. I had balls when I was like a kid. Like when we were going to school in our hometown. Shout out to Tolland. But when we were going to school, like sometimes I would just not do homework, and I would just say that I would just be like, "No, I didn't do it." <laughs> like <laughs> not doing it. I don't know. I don't know how I got the up the gall to do that. But ah, oh, you couldn't even. Well, for the book reports, you couldn't even be like, "Oh, well, my favorite part was." Yeah, in the middle. Or, you know, get the language arts buzzwords like conflict, antagonist, and all those. But Mm -hmm. so, um, and you know, a crucial part of of Shitty Booker's Report is saying I'm a lot. Um, Or for, in my case, like. uh, Like, so the truth is, the book I have, I I picked up this book because I saw it on an episode of Lost. Nice. Uh, So. The show, if you've seen it, has a lot of like literary philosophical references in it. It does. The yeah, John, names. Yeah. John Locke. Yeah, Locke and Rousseau, and there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, you know, and also they just have characters reading books in it a lot, and they mm-hmm. just you know show books from time to time. And I remember there was a reference to the third policeman. Really. Uh, in one of the middle middle seasons, yeah, the mm-hmm. book I covered in episode two that I'm obsessed with. Uh, which I thought was cool, and you know, after I saw that, I paid really close attention anytime mm-hmm. that a book was referenced. In that shout show. out to it. So. There's a, another very good literary show which comes out of nowhere, but uh, shout out to Gilmore Girls. Great show for literary references. Yeah, we've got to compile all those. <laughs> it's probably already compiled somewhere, but yeah. actually, uh, on the on the podcast last week, I talked about Nosgard Volume One, and in the Netflix revival of Gilmore Girls, one of her former boy. That. One of her boyf- former boyfriends, Jess, is reading volume two of Nosgard. He has it, he has it in his hand in the episode. I was like, oh, shit. Cool. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, yeah, the book I have today was, it's, I think you would see it on the last episode of season five of Lost. It was okay. being read by Jacob, who's like the unseen character uh, Ooh, who they yeah. talk about all the time, who finally like shows up later on in the show. He's like the protector of the island. He, 
he influences the lives of the main characters to get them there so they can, you know, take over his job or whatever. So he's on this whole trip through time where he's showing up at different points in people's lives to monitor them or whatever. And so he's actually, he's shown reading this book on a park bench uh, while he waits for John Locke to be pushed out of a window by his father. That's like the accident that paralyzes him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, he's just sitting on a bench reading this book, waiting for it to happen. And I realized after reading it that it's kind of it's sort of fitting because the type of it's the type of thing that might happen in the book. And so this is a collection of really dark, kind of short stories that involve a lot of violence and death and family issues and just really bleak circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, major credit to you if you're listening to this and you've already figured out what the book is just based on some extreme lost <laughs> trivia knowledge. Um, someone someone out there is going to know it. But um, So my book for this week is the uh, posthumous short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor mm-hmm. yep. from 1965. I think I've read just the title one of just this. Just that story? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think I'm actually going to dive into that one later on. Good. So, uh, her full name is Mary Flannery O'Connor. She was born in 1925, died in 1964. Uh, so she was an American author, mostly wrote short, short stories, also a couple novels, I think two novels and, and some bunch of essays. Uh, and her writing was known for having like a Southern Gothic voice and style. And so this is the only thing I've read from her. So I'm not that familiar, but I think it, it was a good introduction to her work. And I know you're all about debut novels, but what about the final bow? You know, I think she was working on these at the time of her death. Yeah, I'm into that too. I'm definitely into that. The final, the final novel. Yeah. I think a lot of authors like trick themselves, like a lot, like it's quoted as Faulkner believed that a novel that he wrote later in life called A Fable is his best book, which pretty much everyone disagrees with. So (laughs) so I think that they, they sometimes have that going on, but um, yeah. Last books are definitely good. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. No, uh, so her work, it's it's been it just des- you know described as grotesque, and even from my small sample, I would say that's pretty accurate. And there's there's some great quotes about this where she stated, uh, "Anything that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the Northern reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it is going to be called realistic." And also, uh, I am mighty tired of reading reviews that call A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is one of her short story collections, brutal and sarcastic. These stories are hard, but they are hard because there is nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. When I see these stories described as horror stories, I am always amused because the reviewer always has hold of the wrong horror. Hmm. So it's like, it's that concept we talked about before, like when you did Invisible Man, that maybe the writing isn't as crazy as you think. Like, it's just... Yeah, yeah. it's, it's you know, it, it will remind you of stuff you've seen or, you yeah. know, experience. Uh, and she also, she also said, to the heart of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. She had some uh, sharp retorts to anyone who questioned her stories. Uh, so her stories, they're often, you know, they're often very real. They're very brutal. And, you know, most often the hand of fate comes down and just destroys everything in its path. So in everything that rises must converge, every story is messed up in a different way. It's a lot of themes like racism and mental illness and abuse. And the characters in focus are typically very flawed. Uh, and in this book, their flaw that flaw is usually their morals. 
And after the first few stories, you know what to expect by the time you get to the end. And there's a good chance they're going to die in some horrific way. You know, either that or they'll end up running from what they've been chasing or something along that vein. Basically, they are humbled or get what's coming to them. And they want to be or act righteous. But I think what she tries to point out is that no one really is. And everyone is imperfect and is in need of some redemption. So um, it's pretty interesting angles. Uh, so these stories have gut punches within them. and But it's amazing how real the characters feel. Like the way they talk and their actions are very close to life. And you'll find yourself going like, I've come across this person or, sh- or shit. I've, I've been this person or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember my impression of everything, the actual story, everything that rises must converge. Like you said, is like, her she had, she deals with a lot i think i probably like missed the boat or something because she deals a lot with like racism and and uh violence and stuff like that but what i remember of it is have you ever have you ever um like reread or read um huck finn by mark twain not in a long time so in that book it's like um you know it's revolutionary for being um you know, basically, it's it's revolutionary for being acknowledging, you know, that African-Americans are human beings, which, oh, my God, how revolutionary. But what came what comes across when you read it is like the famous scene of that is like he's just talking. It basically seems benign to our aesthetic now versus what was acceptable then. Like, I think the revolutionary scene in Huck Finn is that he talks about how the slave also misses his family. <laughs> And it's like, wow, yeah. it, like how revolutionary was that to talk about that at that time? Did you feel that same way about um, O'Connor or am I like just it like went over my head? Uh, no, there's there's some stories in here where I mean, but the thing in this book is that usually if there is some kind of uh, experience with racism going on, it'll be one character is, you know, having that opinion and there'll be someone there. And it's kind of like that's going, you know you're wrong or uh you're like you're you're in the wrong and it's that's kind of what the that title story is like mm-hmm. um so i i guess i want to I'll, I'll stop speaking in vague terms about it and just focus on the title story and the title everything that rises must converge it it's referring to a work uh called omega point by the french philosopher pierre uh, i'm gonna mess this up pierre taylor de chardin and uh, the quote from that is, remain true to yourself, but move ever upward toward greater consciousness and greater love. At the summit, you will find yourselves united with all those who, from every direction, have made the same ascent for everything that rises must converge. So uh, I think I want to read just I just want to read the first few pages of this short story just to give you an idea of the writing style or at, well, the listener idea and to remind you. <laughs> um, it almost has like a dunces feel to it where there's a southern mother and son okay her doctor had told julian's mother that she must lose 20 pounds on account of her blood pressure so on wednesday nights julian had to take her downtown on the bus for a reducing class at the y the reducing class was designed for working girls over 50 who weighed from 165 to 200 pounds his mother was one of the slimmer ones but she said ladies did not tell their age or their weight She would not ride the buses by herself at night since they had been integrated. And because the reducing class was one of her few pleasures necessary for her health and free, she said Julian could at least put himself out to take her, considering all she did for him. 
Julian did not like to consider all she did for him, but every Wednesday night he braced himself and took her. She was almost ready to go, standing before the hall mirror, putting on her hat, while he, his hands behind him, appeared pinned to the doorframe, waiting like St. Sebastian for the arrows to begin piercing him. The hat was new, and it cost her seven dollars and a half. She kept saying, maybe I shouldn't have paid that for it. No, I shouldn't have. I'll take it off and return it tomorrow. I shouldn't have bought it. Julian raised his eyes to heaven. Yes, you should have bought it, he said. Put it on and let's go. It was a hideous hat. A purple velvet flap came down on one side of it and slid up on the other. The rest of it was green and looked like a cushion with the stuffing out. He decided it was less comical than jaunty and pathetic. Everything that gave her pleasure was small and depressed him. She lifted the hat one more time and set it down slowly on top of her head. Two wings of gray hair protruded on either side of her florid face, but her eyes, sky blue, were as innocent and untouched by experience as they must have been when she was ten. Were it not that she was a widow who had struggled fiercely to feed and clothe and put him through school, and who was supporting him still, until he got on his feet, she might have been a little girl he had to take to town. It's all right, it's all right, he said, let's go. He opened the door himself and started down the walk to get her going. The sky was a dying violet, and the houses stood out darkly against it, bulbous, liver-covered monstrosities of a uniform ugliness, though no two were alike. Since this had been a fashionable neighborhood forty years ago, his mother persisted in thinking they did well to have an apartment in it. Each house had a narrow collar of dirt around it in which sat, usually, a grubby child. Julian walked with his hands in his pockets, his head down and thrust forward, and his eyes glazed with the determination to make himself completely numb during the time that he would be sacrificed to her pleasure. The door closed, and he turned to find the dumpy figure, surmounted by the atrocious hat, coming toward him. Well, she said, you only live once and paying a little more for it. I at least won't meet myself coming and going. Someday I'll start making money, Julian said gloomily. He knew he never would. And you can have one of those jokes whenever you take the fit. But first they would move. He visualized a place where the nearest neighbors would be three miles away on either side. I think you're doing fine, she said, drawing on her gloves. You've only been out of school a year. Rome wasn't built in a day. She was one of the few members of the Y-reducing class who arrived in hat and gloves and who had a son who had been to college. It takes time, she said, and the world is in such a mess. This hat looks better on me than any of the others. Though when she brought it out, I said, take that thing back. I wouldn't have it on my head. And she said, now wait till you see it on. And when she put it on me, I said, well. And she said, if you ask me, that hat does something for you, and you do something for the hat. And besides, she said, with that hat, you won't meet yourself coming and going. Julian thought he could have stood his lot better if he had been, if she had been selfish, if she had been an old hag who drank and screamed at him. He walked along, saturated in depression, as if in the midst of his martyrdom, he had lost his faith. Catching sight of his long, hopeless, irritated face, she stopped suddenly with a grief-stricken look and pulled back on his arm. Wait on me, she said. I'm going back to the house and take this thing off, and tomorrow I'm going to return it. I was out of my head. I can pay the gas bill with that 750. He caught her arm in a vicious grip. You are not going to take it back, he said. I like it. Well, she said, I don't think I ought. Shut up and enjoy it, he muttered, more depressed than ever. With the world and the mess it's in, she said, it's a wonder we can enjoy anything. I tell you, the bottom rail is on the top. Julian sighed. Of course, she said, if you know who you are, you can go anywhere. She said this every time he took her to the reducing class. Most of them in it are not our kind of people, she said, but I can be gracious to anybody. I know who I am. They don't give a damn for your graciousness, Julian said savagely. Knowing who you are is good for one generation only. You haven't the foggiest idea where you stand now or who you are. She stopped and allowed her eyes to flash at him. I most certainly do know who I am, she said, and if you don't know who you are, I'm ashamed of you. Oh, hell, Julian said. 
Your great-grandfather was a former governor of this state, she said. Your grandfather was a prosperous landowner. Your grandmother was a god high. Will you look around you, he said tersely, and see where you are now? And he swept his arm jerkily out to indicate the neighborhood, which the growing darkness at least made less dingy. You remain what you are, she said. Your great-grandfather had a plantation and 200 slaves. There are no more slaves, he said irritably. They were better off when they were... They were better off when they were, she said. He groaned to see that she was off on that topic. She rolled onto it every few days like a train on an open track. He knew every stop, every junction, every swamp along the way, and knew the exact point at which her conclusion would roll majestically into the station. It's ridiculous. It's simply not realistic. They should rise, yes, but on their own side of the fence. So, the story is like that. It's, you know, it's about a mother and son. The son has a more tolerant worldview, even mm -hmm. though he's sort of miserable. And the mother is has, you know, blatant casual racism of that was typical of the American South at that time. And she's worried about riding the bus by herself since they've been integrated. Mm -hmm. And uh it's kind of this weird relationship where he's dependent on her and he's kind of putting up with her views mm -hmm. but also kind of rebelling in small ways and that that's kind of where the story goes yeah but it's like as you it's kind of exactly what you said is like all of uh, like we know these characters and have like been in their position you know like when you go somewhere with like an older family member and it's like I, I like the part where he said like he basically just had to like numb himself for like the next like yeah. you know few things because it's like you're co like I've hung out with like my older family members and it's like you're just gonna like say stuff that I don't enjoy and like whatever yeah. <laughs> but we're just gonna like get through it. It's the drunk uncle from SNL. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you know that's the kind of thing like that you just yeah you hope diminishes with each new generation. Uh, so I want to read a quick summary piece from Wikipedia, which is cheating, but it's true to the nature of. <laughs> well, then I'm cheating. Then I'm cheating on every test. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Though he despises his mother's racism, cheeriness, and intellectual aloofness, Julian resentfully agrees to escort her, if only out of a sense of duty to the woman who paid his way through college and continues to support him even afterward. His confrontational bitterness and her thoughtless prejudice bring the circumstance to a boil. When they step onto the bus and join a widely disparate cast of characters, among them three African-American citizens who inhabit vastly different regions of the social spectrum. Uh, and I think, yeah, this story is probably around 30 pages as well. Actually, it might even be less than that. Yes, yeah, 20, 23 pages. Um, and I wouldn't say it's the best story in this book. There's a couple other ones. I just wanted to kind of highlight the uh, title track. <laughs> but um definitely some compelling stories here and you know due to their strength i'll be ch checking out more of them soon she has a lot of other collections mm -hmm. yeah she has a few because i always thought that that was like her main collection but she, there's a few other ones that don't even have that one in it yeah there's a good man is hard to find is one and i think i think now you can just buy uh the complete stories yeah. Like this big... Uh, big yeah, book. you can buy one of those like huge books. Yeah. Which everyone but, uh, loves to lug around. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, yeah, collections where you you know what to expect and how it's going to make you feel 
and the writing is really good and uh there's you know a gut punch or a crazy kind of ending in each one uh she doesn't he doesn't end on a, a low note you know mm-hmm. awesome well good job yeah so i recommend uh some flannery o'connor short stories nice short story All week right. yeah so uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, uh, you know, books you want us to cover, whatever you're feeling. All right, see you next time. Peace.